Well, good morning. What a wonderful day. What an absolutely glorious day. Happy Palm Sunday. Right? What a wonderful day in the house of the Lord. What a blessing to watch God's faithfulness build his church. You know, the culture can kick and scream, but God is building his church. They can think they've captured the hearts and the minds of the youth, but God is building his church. And I was reminded of that twice this week as we first watched our daughter marry a godly young man with great joy. We're so thankful for them. Two young people that some would think the world and the culture would gobble up, but not so fast. God will build his church. And of course, with the wonderful baptism of two young people who are dear and precious to us, what a privilege for us to join with the Rogers family as their children, Lena and Augie, proclaim God's saving faithfulness toward them in baptism, to publicly identify with their Savior, being raised to new life in Christ. Lena and Augie, may you cling to him with every fiber of your being. Oh, the world will huff and puff. You stay the course. You run the race well. You are surrounded by a multitude to cheer you on. Amen? Amen. Well, I know the last month or so has been a bit of a, well, a bit of a fire hose for some as we've dove headlong into Mark 13, swimming in the wonderful deep waters of eschatology. And what an adventure it's been so far as we've witnessed the beautiful tapestry of the Olivet Discourse woven throughout Scripture. And I want to commend all of you for leaning in and to, for pressing in to gain understanding. Even when it seems like a lot to absorb, your efforts are rewarded as we grow in both knowledge and love of God. Being encouraged and equipped, not only for the times in which we live, but warning others for the times that will come. As we witness God in all of his attributes, taking both comfort and caution, wonderment and warning at God's future decree for judging sin on the earth with a terrible finality. Ushering in a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. So it's been a tremendous time of learning and encouragement for us thus far. But now as we approach the Easter season, it's our desire that you have a, a short time at least to digest all that we've explored, to allow some of these great truths laid out in eschatology to take hold in your spirit as you ponder them anew. And thus we're going to be taking a short two-week detour for Palm Sunday and Easter to pause our epic journey through last things. And this week, we turn our hearts toward the Psalter. The beloved, preaching through the Psalms is a great joy for any expositor. Indeed, the reading, of this, the reading and the study of the Psalms should saturate the life of every believer, diving into what Charles Spurgeon called the riches of David's treasury. Now, I can hazard a guess that all of us have clung to the Psalms throughout our life in Christ, walking with the psalmist through their mountaintops of praise and through their valleys of questioning and crying out. I, know that I, wanted to, I knew that I wanted to return to the Psalter this Lord's Day, but how does one pick a jewel from 150 of the most brilliant and perfect diamonds? Of course, I began to prayerfully make my way through the Psalter, seeking where the Lord would have us to go, and I was reminded with somewhat of a smile of a tendency of mine to really overuse my Bible highlighter sometimes. But it serves to guide me to places and to remind me of psalms that truly grabbed hold, that commanded special attention and affection in times past. 
and I came upon just one so special. And in fact, due to my notes, I actually remembered where I studied this psalm. On one of my many trips to Israel, I was staying at a hotel just inside the Jaffa Gate, inside the old city in Jerusalem. And on the roof of this hotel were tables and chairs with, with an unobstructed view of the Mount of Olives to the east. And it was not uncommon to see visitors and pilgrims sitting up there in the early morning as the sun would rise over the Mount of Olives, studying their Bibles and praying. And it was here in this old city of Jerusalem that I did battle, as it were, with the psalm before us this morning. And if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles, beloved, to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, a message we've titled, Spiritual Amnesia. And you'll notice we come upon Psalm 73 at the beginning of Book 3 of the Psalter. And here we find the author of this psalm to be Asaph. And Asaph, along with his sons, they're credited with writing 12 of the 150 psalms. And we read most thoroughly about Asaph in 1 Chronicles 25. It reads, Moreover, David and the commanders of the army set apart for the service some of the sons of Asaph and Hevam and Jedithun, who were to prophesy with lyres, harps, and cymbals. And the number of those who performed their service was of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nathaniah, and Asherah. The sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph, who prophesied under the direction of the king. So we see that Asaph was a Levite, and not just any, but he was the chief of the Levites. First Chronicles 6 tells us Asaph was the men who was of the men whom David put in charge of the service of song in the house of the Lord after the ark rested there. So in other words, this was a man who had risen as high as you could go in the operation of the temple and in the worship of God. And worship leaders then are not like so many worship leaders today. Their job was not to turn on a smoke machine and gin up the crowd into an emotional frenzy. Sometimes it was Asaph's job to sit in ashes and sackcloth before the people, calling them to repentance. Asaph would not have gotten the worship leader job at the local megachurch, I can assure you. But let his high position help frame our thoughts as we move forward. Beloved, we have many mature saints in our fellowship. And while that is God's design and plan for you to grow in sanctification, it is not a guarantee against what we will term spiritual amnesia. And Psalm 73 is so infinitely rich, it's really going to be a challenge to exposit our way through it this morning really not even having the opportunity to examine the occasion for its writing in 2 Kings 19. But do read that on your own, beloved, as you're able. 2 Kings 19, to see the circumstance that drove this psalm. Nevertheless, let us begin our climb. Now, Psalm 73 is made up of 28 verses. I'm not going to read our entire text first, as is customary. But to give us a flavor, I'm going to take us through our first 16 verses. And that will take us nearly to the summit of our psalm before we come back down the other side. But be encouraged, the summit will be well worth the effort. There's a bit of a change as well from our normal LSB due to some linguistics. I'll be reading from the ESV this morning as well. So follow along in your Bibles with me, beloved. Psalm 73, a psalm of Asaph. Truly, God is good to Israel. To those who are pure in heart, but as for me... My feet had almost stumbled. 
my steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as needy people. Lord, we are helpless without the work of your spirit in your word to apply apply it to our lives. Heavenly Father, we have many gathered today, and you know the needs of each one. I do not. But Lord, we pray that the arrow would find its mark with great precision. Lord, that you would cause us to grow, that you would cause us to love you more. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, if one were to look up the symptoms or the pathology of amnesia, we would see see that it refers to a loss of memories, including facts, information, and experiences. Someone suffering from amnesia has trouble learning new information, trouble remembering past events, and maybe previously familiar information. They may even suffer from false memories that are either completely invented or they're real memories that are misplaced in time. They exhibit confusion or disorientation. These are the symptoms of amnesia. The psalmist today is reflecting upon just such an experience, just such a time in his life. A time when his eyes and his heart were moved off of the highest treasure and onto the world around him. A time when self-pity and misplaced priorities caused him to suffer from spiritual amnesia, forgetting the promises of God. Forgetting the end that will come to the ungodly. Forgetting the temporary nature of all that the wicked enjoy. Forgetting that God has called a divine purpose for those who scripture calls haters of God. Thus as we begin to open Asaph's psalm with verse 1, let us first appreciate the incredible beauty of this opening stanza. Beloved, the psalmist is not about to merely begin this journey of reflection of his season of spiritual amnesia, of a dark time when he spoke to his heart that which was false, that reflection has already happened. It's already happened, and he's considered it all, and it causes his heart to overflow and overwhelm, and now he opens with a declaration. Verse 1, Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. This is a triumph of praise as he reflects. This is like a person who rises to testify, right? To tell of a sad tale. But he begins with the end. I'm about to tell you of a valley. I'm going to tell you where I fell to. I'm going to tell you of failure. But wait, let me tell you the end at the beginning. Truly, 
God is good. For those who have purified themselves, who have washed themselves in your word, reminded themselves of your word, for those that have preached to themselves that which is true, God is good to them. And we get the wonderful end at the beginning. And here's the spoiler alert. God is good. He's going to take us down a dark place. But understand, God is good. And now that we've made this declaration, even as I will tell you of my folly, even as I will tell you of a valley when I suffered amnesia of the heart, let me remind you of the score when a child of God goes into battle. Look with me to verse 2, beloved. Look with me to verse 2. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My feet, my steps had nearly slipped. Oh, what an easy lament to gloss over. But look closely, beloved. Therein you find the victory and the hope upon any battlefield for the Christian. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. What a great promise before us. Protestant reformer John Hooper, he considered Asaph's lament when he wrote this quote. There is to be noted that the psalmist said he was almost gone and not altogether. Here is the presence, providence, strength, safeguard, and keeping of a man by the Almighty God, marvelously set forth. That although we are tempted and brought even to the very point to perpetrate and do all mischief, yet he stays us and he keeps us that the temptation shall not overcome us. Every temptation is divine opportunity for God to demonstrate his keeping power of his children. A righteous man falls seven times, but he gets back up seven times. When sin presents itself, when unbiblical thinking creeps in, the victory for the Christian lies ever before you. Just reach out and grab hold. You may almost stumble. You may nearly slip. But divine guardrails have been placed to your left and to your right. A firm foundation is ever present that we might not stumble, that we might not slip. Just as the psalmist has declared that God is good, He is now presenting the danger and the keeping power of God. Yet as we look to verse 2, do we see any obligation to sin? Is there any shackle to sin? Is there any foregone conclusion to sin? There's none presented. Such is the battle. Paul reminds the church at Corinth that we are afflicted in every way. Now sometimes it's from others. Sometimes it's of the enemy. But most of the time it's our own mind. And our own heart that are drawn away by our own fallen nature and lust, James tells us. But what is the score for the Christian? That we are afflicted in every way, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but we're not despairing. We're persecuted, but we're not forsaken. We're struck down, but we're not destroyed. And so here with the psalmist, we find him half defeated, don't we? Feet almost slipping and stumbling. Oh, Asaph, tell us your sin that caused such a valley. Tell us your heart that bred such despond. Look with me to verse 3. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Oh, beloved, 
what immense treasure lies here. And surely a sin that could set such a mature saint as Asaph on edge, it must be external and extravagant. In our folly, beloved, are we not far more prone to do battle with our external sin than the sin of the heart? Yet, as we always say, the heart of the matter is a matter of the heart. And here our psalmist has found himself on the rocky shoals, not because of a gross external sin, but because of spiritual, am- but because spiritual amnesia has brought on unbiblical thought patterns, which has now given birth to envy. And considering this, Charles Spurgeon writes, quote, It is a pitiful thing that an heir of heaven should have to confess, I was envious. But worse still, that he should have to put it, I was envious at the wicked, close quote. But we have so much to behold here, beloved. What is the true serpent that's lurking underneath the waters of envy? Yes, envy is condemned. We see the sin of envy cautioned against over ten times throughout the Old and the New Testaments. Both Matthew and Mark tell us that it was envy of the chief priests that drove the very crucifixion of our Lord. Envy is a sin of the flesh that characterizes the life of the unbeliever, is it not? It's put on open display in the world. Envy is a vastly socially acceptable sin. But what about the sin of envy in the believer? Why does this take on such special meaning and significance? Why has the manifestation of this heart so wrecked Asaph? Well, what is envy? What is envy? It's defined as the sin of jealousy over the blessings and achievements of others. Well, that's simple. It sounds actually kind of benign on the surface, doesn't it, compared to this or that? What then makes envy so insidious? What is the viper that's coiled to strike? Well, many will remember something often taught here, a a principle from biblical counseling that just about everything that we do and say and especially think is a theological statement. Nearly everything we say, do, and think says something about what we believe about God. If the believer is envious, if a believer looks at what another has done or acquired and says, I begrudge him that, or I want it for myself, or why do they deserve that, what is the theological statement packed into that? Well, there's many. But what's the heart? More importantly, what is the root? Watch for the root. Asaph is saying in his heart, I deserve that. Here I am, top dog in your ministry, sitting in sackcloth and ashes, calling your people to repentance. I've devoted my entire life to you. I serve in your temple. I deserve that. What's the root of that envy? Did you catch it? It's pride. I deserve. Look at my works. I deserve. It's pride. And how about the root of the accusation of envy? The accusation against God in envy is that God has done what? That he's held back something good from me. Forgetting that all you lament God has not given you in scripture has the capacity to ruin a man. No. Envy says God has kept something good from me. The clay stands in judgment over the potter. Root? Pride. 
Every root structure of this envy tree that you will trace will trace back to the most deadly of all, pride. And thus, beloved, what is the antidote of envy? What is the divine elixir that Asaph should drink deeply from when these unbiblical thought patterns were taking hold? Contentment. Puritan author Jeremiah Burroughs in his famous treaty, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. If you've not read it, bump it up to the top. He offers the following description of Christian contentment as, quote, the sweet, inward, quiet, gracious frame of spirit which freely submits to and delights in God's wise and fatherly disposal in every condition. Behold, beloved, the envy slayer. God has done right. God has kept nothing good from me. Beloved, behind envy lurks the very lie from the garden that God is keeping something from you that you deserve. And that leaves us with a really big problem. Beloved, because either he's sovereign over your life and what you have, but he's not good and he doesn't love you, or he isn't sovereign over your life, in which case he's powerless to help or change it or give anything to you in the first place. Besides the insidiousness of envy and its root pride, it denies the very godhood of God. For if I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Oh, beloved, this is such a struggle for God's people. The prospering of the wicked strikes amnesia into the hearts of believers. They forget. They forget. It's blinding. Let us take a quick survey, a quick journey through just a few places in Scripture where godly men were struck with spiritual amnesia. What did they say? And how did God respond? How about the prophet Jeremiah? In his lamenting and his complaining to God. Jeremiah 12. It's actually titled, Jeremiah's Complaint. Jeremiah's Complaint. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root. They grow and produce fruit. God's response? (laughs) If you have raced with men on foot and they've wearied you, how will you compete with horses? And if in a safe land you are so trusting, what will you do in the thicket of the Jordan? In other words, grow up, Jeremiah. You've got real challenges coming your way. If this is sidetracking you, you're toast. Boy, I need that rebuke along with Jeremiah some days. Jeremiah's not alone, however. about Habakkuk chapter 1? You'll never guess the title of Habakkuk chapter 1. Habakkuk's complaint. Listen to the accusations against God. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. Justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, and justice goes forth perverted. Habakkuk says, you're not listening, God. You're not stopping violence. You're giving a wink and a nod to wrongdoing. You're unjust. You're not implementing your law. Justice is nowhere to be seen. The wicked have the upper hand. 
They're prospering everywhere. They surround the righteous. Look at the amnesia. And does the Lord answer? Oh, yeah. He answers. I haven't got time to read it all, but God lays down a tremendous principle for the prospering of the wicked. He says, yes, I see all of it. And I am using these wicked men, these wicked nations, as my instrument for judgment. I have placed them there for my purposes. Throughout all human history, God has used wicked men for his divine purposes. God allows that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves. God used and allowed the most wicked, evil act of all time, the murder of his own spotless son, to accomplish the greatest good of all time, the very salvation of the elect. When when spiritual amnesia strikes, beloved, we forget this truth. How about God's servant Job? Hear his cry, Job chapter 21. Why do the wicked live? Reach old age and grow mighty in power. Their offspring are established in their presence and their descendants before their eyes. Their houses are safe from fear and no rod of God is upon them. Their bulls breed without fail. Their cow calves and does not miscarry. They send out their little boys like a flock and their children dance. They sing to the tambourine and the lyre. They rejoice at the sound of the pipe. They spend their days in prosperity and in peace. They go down to Sheol. They say to God, depart from us. We do not desire the knowledge of your ways. What is the Almighty that we should serve him? And what profit do we get if we pray to him? Are we seeing a theme here? Does God respond? Well, I think we know he does respond to Job. Chapter 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind, and he said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge, dressed for action like a man? I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? And on God speaks with one of the most powerful replies in all of Scripture. With Job's amnesia quickly dispersing. He said, I'm putting my hand over my mouth now. And here now as we return to our text, Asaph is going to take us down the same road. He's going to give you a peek inside of his thoughts. Verse 4 and 5, I'll read them as one. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Well, so apparently the wicked have a painless death. They're able to fill their fill to overflowing. They're never in trouble. They're never stricken. Well, what observation can we make of the text already? First off, is that true? Is that true? No. Remember, beloved, the master sets the burden. Follow me, beloved. Whoever your master is, is setting your burden. Now, while the righteous can seem to languish and struggle, yes, they may. But who is setting their burden and struggle? Who is orchestrating their load? Is it not our benevolent father who is working all things for our good? Such a load we can bear when we know that it is given by someone who loves us. 
when we know that there is a reward at the end, when we know that our light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory that's far beyond all comparison. Whew. But how about for the lost, for the wicked, for those who work evil, for those outside of Christ who sets their burden? Their father, the devil, and he is a hard, hard taskmaster. And he whips and he beats with nothing but hatred in his being for those he places his deadly burdens upon. As we look with pity and compassion upon those you know who have lived in the clutches of Satan's grasp. And you can see the whipping marks of their master, can't you? So what trap has Asaph fallen into here? Spiritual amnesia, forgetting the truths of God's word, forgetting his promises to us. Beloved, that creates a vacuum. And that vacuum will immediately begin to be filled by the flesh, by the world, by our own darkened counsel, even by doctrines of demons. And Asaph has begun a pathway now of an unbiblical Thought pattern. Envy opened the door. Now here come the amnesia pills. Right in tow. Unbiblical thought patterns. Now what is what Asaph saying completely false? Is it completely false? No. Right? We look around and we see examples, say, in Hollywood, right? The elite circles of life that are utterly wicked and seem to be having a grand old time. That's true. But is it the whole truth? Is Asaph's declaration in verses 4 and 5 the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help us God? No. There is truth in there. We do see the wicked seeming to prosper, to go through life with ease, but that's not the whole story. Hollywood is an easy target, a great testing ground, isn't it? Do they have no pangs until death? They drop like flies from overdosing and alcoholism. They live hard and die hard, many of them. Do they live trouble-free and unstricken? Not hardly. Their personal lives are usually a mess. Their wealth is siphoned from them through divorces and other unsavory dealings. They live in an astroturf world where everything is fake. The people, the friendships. How many Hollywood lives throughout history have been labeled as tragedies, even by the secular world? Many, many. The jar of amnesia pills were labeled envy and pride. And Asaph took them. He took them. But the effects come on slowly. Verses 4 and 5 are not a complete untruth. It's a half-truth, isn't it? Ease into it. Oh, look at the great life of the wicked. Now hang on, Asaph. That's not what the scroll you're carrying into the temple right now. That's not what it says. But watch the progression of thought here as we move along. So back at verse 3, envy entered in. And no sooner had Asaph taken the pills, but he suffered from an immediate category error in verse 3. When he saw the prosperity of the wicked, he saw their prosperity. But prosperity according to whom? Whose definition are we using here? What does it mean for the godly to prosper? I know folks will struggle to rub two nickels together that are rich. Rich in God, prosperous. 
the only definition of prosperity that matters, the definition that is to be ours as believers. And Asaph surrendered that. Then he bit off on a half-truth in verses 4 and 5. Look with me as Asaph continues, verses 6 through 12. He continues down his path, verses 6 through 12. Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment, Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. Does any of this sound familiar? Almost verbatim of Jeremiah, Habakkuk, Job, others. Now we don't have time to dig into each one of these charges. But I want us to observe a few key things. Look into our first word in verse 6. What is it? Therefore. Therefore. And we know what that word means, don't we? We stop on that word. We pause and we consider all that we've read up to this point. The psalmist is saying because they have no pain in death, because they're well-fed, because they're, they're out of trouble and not afflicted, therefore, verses 6 and 12. We notice something fascinating in these following verses. Asaph is in the middle of his spiritual amnesia. He's in the middle of grappling with his envy and pride, of category errors and espousing half-truths as he falls under amnesia's spell. What does he do? Asaph proceeds to make seven verses of absolutely correct observations, doesn't he? It's astute. It's spot on. Boy, he can spot their problem clear as day. Funny how that works, isn't it? And indeed, we see that in the world. Consider the secular practice of psychology, even psychiatry. They are able to make remarkable observations of the human condition. Absolutely correct. The diagnostic manual used in psychology and psychiatry are chocked full of accurate observations of the human condition. But that's as far as it goes. There are solutions for the observation. Now what do we do about it? Are usually highly unbiblical. Their answer as to why this happens or occurs in people is unbiblical. But they can make excellent observations, just like our dear Asaph. And yet, as we have reminded ourselves so many times, beloved, sin never stays stagnant, does it? Error begets worse error. Wrong thinking, unbiblical thinking that is allowed to stink and fester will metastasize and mutate. Sin is an active moving force. It has weight and momentum. It never stays still. And Asaph so graciously records for us his further descent into wrong thinking, his further plunge into spiritual amnesia. Look with me, beloved, to verses 13 through 15. Here comes Asaph, the functional atheist. Here comes Asaph, the victim. Out come his the violins to play his woes. Verse 13 through 15. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken And rebuked every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Oh, Asaph, 
Listen to yourself. Does the chief Levite espouse blasphemy? That God will not keep his promises to those who fear and keep his word? That it is pointless? That it's worthless and vain to maintain a pure heart that's undefiled before the Lord? Did Asaph mean to call God a liar? As one who does not keep his promises? You said that the pure in heart will see God. Psalm 24. Apparently no. It's all in vain. When you're suffering from spiritual amnesia. Beloved, how fast did that sin, did that unbiblical thinking metastasize? Not only is keeping a pure heart before God worthless and vain apparently, but oh, I'm stricken all the day long. I'm rebuked every morning. Is that true, Asaph? Is that really true? If you're being stricken every day as a believer, it is the work and conviction of the Holy Spirit to draw you to repentance. Remember who sets your burdens. Remember. Victimhood loves to take root and to take hold when the truth of God's word is not there to combat it. And guess what else happens when unbiblical thinking takes hold? Look at verse 15 again with me, beloved. If I had said I will speak thus... I will have betrayed the generation of your children. Now, what does that mean? It means that the moment he started having these unbiblical thoughts, he isolated himself. He didn't utter a word of it. I'll be judged by people for thinking these thoughts. What will people think? I know I shouldn't be thinking this way, but I can't say anything. If I do, what if I, what if I cause someone else to stumble? What if I speak how I'm feeling and thinking and I cause someone else to question God's goodness just as I have? Sin's first objective is to hide and isolate. It wants to remain under the cloak of night. It hates the light and it hates confession. Come, Asaph. Come on. Walk back toward the truth. Stop feeding yourself half-truths and untruths. Stop the locomotive of sin before it drive you, drives you to further despair. He's now isolated with his own thoughts. We need a rescue mission here, don't we? We need our next word to be a direction change. A hinge word. A word about which we can turn the corner. Giving us strength for the struggling saint. And he does. Look with me, beloved, to verse 16. But. But. Okay. Okay. That's a pause. That's a possible direction change. What is it? Verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Something has checked our psalmist. I know this isn't right, but I need to understand this. But oh, it is a wearisome task. Here's a nugget for you, saints. Discerning truth takes work. It's not just going to fall into your lap. We are not predisposed to the truth. We are predisposed to error. If left to our natural state, we will trend toward and we will foster error. It takes work to discern what is true. 
It takes work to answer the question of the prosperity of the wicked or of any other objection our fallen selves like to conjure up on a daily basis. But I need to understand this. Can you see the fog starting to clear for Asaph? Can you see the light of the summit starting to break through? It's a wearisome task, Asaph, yes. But have you inclined your ear toward understanding? Are you determined to push toward the summit? Are you determined to break through? How? What do I do? Where is the truth to be found? Where can unbiblical thought be unwound and truth be restored in its place? What is God's plan to rescue our struggling saint from his weary, desperate, and disillusioned state? Here comes our summit. Here comes our light breaking through. Here it comes, verse 17. Until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. I went to where your name is praised and worshipped. I went to where your word is read and meditated upon. I went to where your word is preached and expounded upon. I went to where your people who love you gather to encourage and build me up to speak truth to me. Beloved, if you are a Christian, you are not even designed to function outside of the local church. It is God's plan for you to grow you, to sanctify you, to feed you, to dispel the fogs of war that settle upon our minds in hard days. It is the chorus of worship. It is the word in your hands. It's the person sitting to your right and to your left. It's the preached word in front of you right now. That's God's plan for you. There are no lone rangers in Christianity. Stop lying to yourself. I went into the sanctuary of God. And guess what? Discernment returned to Asaph. Clarity came, breaking the fog of deception, breaking the patterns of unbiblical thought that threatened to undo him. He went to where truth was declared. And watch what happens very quickly. Verses 18 through 20. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment. Swept away utterly by terrors like a dream when one wakes. O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. That's the truth, dear brother. Being reminded of Psalm 37, where David, your king Asaph, he wrestled with this. And he declared, do not fret because of those who are evil. Or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they will soon die away. Trust in the Lord. And do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your ways to the Lord. Trust in Him, and He will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways when they carry out their wicked schemes. The word has dispelled the error. It flees in the sanctuary of God. And not only is right thinking made right, but beloved, ours is not merely a faith of intellect and correct thinking. Ours is one that makes hearts new, that brings repentance to the hearer, 
So what else happens when we go into the sanctuary of God? Verses 21 and 22, watch this. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Here comes the repentance. This is a Holy Spirit-granted repentance, is it not? A depth of repentance to meet the deed. Recall what Asaph has accused God of as he, the clay, stood in judgment over the potter. The psalmist put it better than any of us could have, that Asaph was brutish, ignorant, and like a beast toward the lover of his soul. And watch now, very quickly, watch what follows repentance. When that break comes, I've sinned before you, God. I've been brutish before you, God. Watch the living waters that now come gushing out of the psalmist. Verse 23 and 28. 23 to 28. Nevertheless. Oh, I must pause on that for just a moment. We can't miss that. Nevertheless. Did you catch that, beloved? We were brutish, ignorant, and like a beast. To the omnipotent, holy, creator, God of the universe. There shouldn't be a nevertheless after that statement. We should be dust. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish and put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Oh, what glorious rivers of truth and living water coming from the fountain of God for us this morning. Beloved, how did the psalmist begin our journey? How did he begin? Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. And so he is, beyond all we can comprehend or imagine. God is good to his people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have brought us to the place of submission to your word this morning. Lord, there's no other place that we desire to be but in the sanctuary of God. Lord, that we might know what is true and what is right. Lord, every one of us walks in spiritual amnesia in one state or another throughout the day. Lord, we ask that clarity would strike us with revealing power that only your word can accomplish. Lord, we thank you for the privilege of baptism today, for the incredible blessing that it is to edify the body. Lord, as we go forth from here, may this word settle in our spirit, take root, and grow fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.